Father, we are we're thrilled to be here. We're thrilled, we're excited to come together as your people, your family, your kids, to bond together under the umbrella of grace and mercy that you have extended to us. Thank you, Father, for this great, great organism that you have called and will call the church. Thank you. Now we ask that you would lead us, guide us, direct us, empower us to hear the words that you have for us this morning. And Father, we pray that we will leave here today just a little bit more in love with Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. The sermon title of this morning's message is The Love That God Hates. Now, we used a little cautionary note last week when we talked about the word hate. Uh, It's one that most of us have probably at one time or another told our children not to use. Uh, It's a word that has a lot of abrasiveness to it. It's very harsh. It's very hard. But it is biblically accurate. I want to read just a few verses The psalmist says, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Oh, you love the Lord, you who love the Lord, hate evil, the psalmist says. Again, though through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way, the psalmist writes. And Psalms, uh, Proverbs 6 is probably one of the more common that is known. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. So there is the appropriate application of hate within the context of scriptures, but I would still use caution in how we use that word. It's much like love itself. It's been so used and so misapplied that it's lost its intended value. It's okay to hate evil. It's okay. But let's concentrate on loving God more. Is that possible? Is that possible? Let's stand as we read from the Word of God this morning, 1 John chapter 2. Verses 12 through 17, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. The love that God hates. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the the evil one. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away 
along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Father, again, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word. Inscribe these truths upon our heart, Father, that we may be more obedient to you simply because we love you and desire to live for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen, amen. Please be seated. You know, as I, I kind of wrestled through this morning in preparation, it was difficult. So I begin with a confession. I'm tired of preaching this series because I'm weary of being convicted. Adam, I'm sorry. I apologize to you because I was short with you this morning. I have been distracted, and I apologize to you, brother. I was distracted, and it's the very thing that we're preaching on this morning. I was sidetracked. I was out of focus, and I was snippy with a brother in Christ, and I'm sorry. At first glance, it appears there is a disconnect in our text between verses 12 through 14 and 15 through 17. But as we'll see, understanding verses 12 through 14 is important before we move to 15 through 17. Because the first three verses out of here give us assurance and encouragement necessary to heed the exhortation of the final verses. Does that make sense? A long explanation to say, we got to get the first few verses before we get the next few. Sermon has two parts, know your victory and know your enemy. And we're going to begin with victory. How many want to begin with victory? Let's have the good news first. Well, it's all good news. It's all good news. In John 10, 10, the Lord Jesus Christ says, the thief, who is the evil one, the devil, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came, Christ says, that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus specifically says there is nothing good ever going to come from the evil one. Nothing he is a liar. He is the father of lies. There is no truth in him. So if Satan speaks, he's a liar. And he'll probably be running for office one of these days. No, I, <laughs> I digress. So the first thing we discover, and I think that it's good for us to understand, is know your deliverer and your destiny. Know your deliverer. And I believe that's what's kind of shared pointedly in the first verses, 12 through 14. Little children, verse 12, literally means born ones. Born ones. This is referencing all believers who have been born again. This passage is a, is a warning to believers because the unsaved already belong to the enemy. So the warning is to believers, to beware. John gives us three categories of believers in the local church. He says there are all believers, little children. There are young men. There are mature men. And there are children once again. So children 
in verse, thir- in, in, in verse 13 is different than children in verse 12. Very quickly, the difference. John, 1 John 2.12, born ones. 1 John 2.13, immature ones. There's a difference. There's a difference. But the point of the text is the past present tense of other descriptive words. Your sins are forgiven. Somebody say hallelujah. That's where we begin. We begin from victory. Your sins are forgiven. You have overcome the evil one. Hallelujah. You know him. You know the Father. The word abides in you, and again, you have overcome the evil one. So John very clearly, under the inspiration and leading the Holy Spirit, lays this foundation that you guys, you believers, you, the church, have already won. You've already won. We're just on the journey to that victory which has already been secured for us by Christ Jesus. So I would say that the best defense is a good offense. Had football. Frank, how'd that go this year? Had a good time, didn't you? Work on that offense, right? Work on that offense. The best defense is a good offense. The Christian's battle is always fought from a position of victory. Not for victory, but from victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. Know who you are in Christ. Know who you are as Christ dwells in you. Children of God are in a family. Young men, you're in a fight. Mature believers stand firm in the faith. Know your deliverer. Know your destiny. Fight the good fight and rest in the victory. Secondly, let's get to know our enemy just a little bit. It's good that we know a bit about him so we're better prepared to stand against him. James 4, 4 says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So we have the world, which is the domain of Satan, that which is in conflict with the ways and the will of God. Uh, David Jeremiah has some brief notes on this. He says, world is used in three different ways in the Bible. Number one, it can refer to the world of creation, that which God spoke into existence. Secondly, it can be uh, pertained to the world of human beings, John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world. Well, he's talking about people. But thirdly, and for today's application, he is referring to a system which aligns with Satan and opposes both God and Christ. This is called a worldview. We as Christians have a, are to have a biblical worldview. We interpret life and we interpret current events. We interpret history. We, we interpret prophecy through a biblical worldview. But those who don't hold a biblical worldview have a secular worldview a worldview that is the absence of God and the Word of God. So they interpret life through experience and feelings and emotions and and whatever else nonsense goes in. Do you see the difference, folks? So when we look at life, even with its troubles, even with its toils, even with with the, the temptations and testings and everything we go, we have a biblical worldview which says Christ won. And we who are in Christ have won with him. So we are the victors. The devil has not changed his tactics. 
since the dawn of creation. He competes with God for our allegiance. And your victory is only going to be found in Christ Jesus. Satan uses three things to lure us away. And they're found in our text, and I'm going to list them to you and then take us back to the origin of these three categories. The three categories are three uh, baits or lures that Satan uses. The lust or desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. When you came in this morning, I hope you received. We maybe not got, uh, we didn't get to everyone, but I hope you got a little sheet. Do you have that little sheet handout, that little song? Well, we pulled this. I pulled this this morning, uh, kind of late. And uh, 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 coming off of VBS, I thought, wow, this is appropriate. So what we're going to do for the sake of uh, being theologically grounded for the remainder of this message, we're going to sing this song. Okay? Because, folks, I'm telling you something. Sometimes we teach our children, or most often in this in this house anyway, we will teach our children solid biblical truths that we may or may not be walking in ourselves. So let's sing a cappello together and see, as we go through this song, if it doesn't match our text today. Are you ready? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful, little tongue, what you say. Oh, be careful, little tongue, what you say. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little tongue, what you say. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little hands, what you do. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little feet, where you go. Oh, be careful, little heart, whom you trust. Oh, be careful, little heart, whom you trust. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little heart, whom you trust. Last verse. Oh, be careful, little mind, what you think. Oh, be careful, little mind, what you think. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little mind, what you think. Good tag. Give yourself a round of applause. Brothers and sisters, there is a tremendous amount of biblical truth in that little children's song. 
and it captures the essence of our text. It really does. So now we've got to move along after a little bit of fun. Where did all this start? Guess what? It started in the garden. Started in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Here it comes. Watch. Here it comes. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. All right, there's the bait. He's cast the bait, right? So when the woman saw, saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, you see, good for food, oh, that satisfies the flesh, right? And it was a delight to look at, satisfies the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life. Do you see the three elements in that verse 6? She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave also some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, and we are living the consequences ever since, my friends. Note three baits the devil used. Second preaching point, the world will distract you from your walk. Do not love the world. Do not love the world. Be careful, little eyes. Be careful, little mind. Be careful, little ear. And on and on and on. Be careful. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Anything that appeals to our fallen nature. That's the world and its lures. Flesh does not refer to flesh and bone, the physical body. It is the nature that man took on at the fall. It's the nature. The new birth for a believer means the old man or the Adam in us dies, but that old nature just hangs on. It just hangs on. And the only way to purge or be purged of the old nature is through a biblical doctrine called sanctification. But folks, we're not going to make perfection this side of eternity. We're not going to make it. So that's an ongoing life building style and, and, and way of living. If we do not keep our eyes keenly focused on Christ and our hearts immersed in the word of God and prayer, Satan will provide a multitude of worldly things to draw our attention. A boat, one author said, certainly is built and belongs in the water. Water does not belong in the boat. We are in the world but the world should not be in us. Holy Spirit, keep the reins on my life. Restrain me from pursuing godless gain and ungodly pleasure. The world is a huge distraction. Let me read a little excerpt from history which can demonstrate in a real historical sense the cost of distraction. On April the 15th, 1865, worldliness crept in to a couple of men who were stationed at a place called Ford Theater. That evening, the assassin John Wilkes Booth stopped at a saloon near Ford Theater and used a little alcohol to settle his nerves. And it was about to become a date in infamy. One drink, two drinks, three drinks, we don't know. History doesn't record. 
Later that night, Lincoln's bodyguard, John F. Parker, was distracted while the president and party were comfortably enjoying the performance of Our American Cousin in Ford Theater. Charles Forbes, Lincoln's footman, and Francis P. Burke, Lincoln's coachman, left Ford Theater with Parker for a drink at presumably the same saloon that John Wilkes Booth had just left. While Parker was distracted in the saloon, the door to the presidential box was left unguarded. John Wilkes Booth went on the attack and slipped into the presidential box during this performance and shot Lincoln. Those two saloon visits just could be the most costly drinks ever served any time in the history of America. Distractions, my friend. Distractions. The world will distract us from our responsibilities. Satan wants to distract the church. He wants to get her off mission by using our fallen nature, the fallen nature of our members. Just say no. Remember the little story? It's really cute. I've used it a hundred times. But when Satan knocks, send Jesus to the door. The world will also disappoint us in the end. It will disappoint us. You see, here's the, here's the key to remember. Satan cannot offer us anything of eternal value. He doesn't possess anything of eternal value, positive eternal value. He cannot have access to that. He is limited to the things of this world. So if Satan offers you a temptation, know this. It's wood, hay, and stable, stubble. He cannot give you anything good He only has access to worldly things, and everything in this world is going to burn up, folks. But he taunts and tests and tempts us with those things. The eyes, maybe the window of the soul or the window of the mind. Well, Jesus said in Matthew 5, you have heard what is said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than their whole body be thrown into hell. We are an entertainment-driven culture. But guess what? Just like the Romans and the Greeks. (laughs) No different. We love to be entertained. That's, That's how Rome tried to keep order in the empire. They would offer entertainment and free bread. If you came to the Colosseum, you'd get a slice of bread and some free entertainment. And the people left happy. Isn't that that amazing? Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Be careful. I warn you. I warn myself. This must go out to all the church. Be careful that you don't come to church looking or wanting to be entertained. We're not here to entertain We're here to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're here to proclaim the word of God and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. If you want to be entertained, go to a theater somewhere. It's not here. Oh, but preacher, I left today and I just didn't feel good. Well, sometimes that's a praise God. Sometimes we need to leave with a little bit of a heavy heart, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Because God's doing a work in our lives then. He's doing a work in our lives. But we are an entertainment-driven culture. Psalm 119 says, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Isn't that a great verse? 
God, take my eyes off of that junk. Take my eyes off of that worthless garbage. Take it off. Paul even said, as I pursue Christ, I consider everything in my past nothing but rubbish. It's, it's just all garbage of no value. Achan, Joshua chapter 7, a soldier in Joshua's army brought defeat to Joshua's army because of the lust of the eyes. God had warned Israel not to take any spoils from the condemned city of Jericho. But Achan not, did not obey. He explained. Here, listen to what Achan said. When I saw among the spoils of godly Babylonian garment and 200 shekels of silver, then I coveted them. Isn't that a, isn't that a powerful confession? And took them. You see, it began with the eyes, didn't it? And then it went to the flesh. And then it went to action. I like it and I'm going to go take it. The lust of the eyes led him into sin. And his sin led an entire army into defeat. What do we watch on TV? What do we read? Where do we, where do we go for entertainment? King David's decline and fall into adultery and murder began with a look. Desires of the flesh, lust of the eyes, drives people into debt. Got to have this, got to have that, which leads to the third device. Matter of fact, well, well, there's an old saying popped into my head, keeping up with the Joneses. Who are those folks anyway? <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I feel kind of sorry for, you know, a, a godly family called the Joneses uh, because they're, they're always set in bad light, you know. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Satan wants to distract the church. He wants to get her off mission. He wants to appeal to that, that old nature that, that is selfish. It's selfish. That's what the old nature is. It's selfish. The world will disappoint us. And finally, the world will destroy our testimony. It'll destroy our testimony. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The pride of life, the pride of life, God's glory so rich and full, man so vain and empty, yet man continues to exalt himself above all gods. People will always try to outdo others when pursuing worldly gain spending and getting more, measuring success and prosperity by possessions of worldly goods. Can you imagine that? And we're guilty. Brothers and sisters, be careful that you don't impose this on others before we look into our own hearts. Do we measure our value and purpose? Do we measure our importance? Do we measure our, 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 our worth, our worth through what we have in the bank or what we own? Be careful. Be careful. It's all wood hay and stubble. Measuring success by the ways of this world is contrary to the will of God. And I would even say this is at the heart of the heresy in the prosperity gospel. It's at the heart of the heresy in the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel always appeals to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Pride will drive people to conform to the ways of the world. It begins with a glance, it continues to pursuit, and it ends in bondage. One author says the downward steps and their consequences are illustrated in the life of Lot. First, he looked toward Sodom. Then he pitched his tent near Sodom, and he moved to the gate of Sodom, 
And pretty soon, guess where he was living? Right in the middle of Sodom. And he had to suffer with the unbelieving sinners of that wicked city. And when God destroyed Sodom, everything that Lot lived for went up in smoke. It was gone. And Lot was saved so as by fire. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 and 15. No wonder John warns us not to love the world. But let's end where we began. How about that? Let's end with victory. Verse 17, and the world is passing away along with this desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This says it all, my friends. It says it all. It summarizes, it capitalizes, it, it brings it all together. Why pursue the temporal when the eternal has already been provided? Why wear ourselves out collecting wood, hay, and stubble that will burn in the end? Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the reality and truth we returned to last week's message, it's a matter of love. If we are fully fallen and falling, continuing to fall in love with Jesus Christ, we haven't got room for a love of the world. Do you see the positive over the negative? So let's keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's love him with our whole mind, body, and soul and strength. Let's love him and there will be no room. There will be no room for the love of the world because we'll be consumed with our love for Christ. The world system is under the control of Satan. He is the God of this world. You can't love this world system and be attached to its values and still love God. If we are guided by the lust of the flesh, the lust of eyes, and the pride of life, we are choosing to serve Satan, the God of this world, and we are turning our backs on the one true and living God. If we love God, we will turn away from the allure of this present world system and will live our lives serving him. It's our choice. It's our choice. The Bible says, I have set before you Life and death. God said, I've set before you life and death. Which will you choose? Which will we choose? Life and eternal value, significance, or death. And amass our fortunes both physically and spiritually with worldly things that will pass away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the living word. Father, if there be one here this morning that is, that is struggling, this, this lifelong battle that we will all face at one point or another, we're going to face that battle. We're going we're to fight the battle between the flesh and the spirit, just like the Apostle Paul. And Father, I hope that our immediate plea is I have the victory through Christ Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. And though I live in this body of flesh, I will not serve it. I will serve the living Christ. Our choice, life or death. Today I encourage you, choose life and get ready because it's quite a ride.